Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We are in Parshat Kitisa, one of my favorite parshiot, even though rabbis are not supposed to have favorite parshiot uh, in Torah, but we, like parents, actually do. Um, and like parents, sometimes it changes, which is the favorite. Um, but uh, but Kitisa uh, truly remains one of my uh, favorite uh, stories in the Torah, because I think it's so um, emblematic of human behavior and the human struggle and um, kind of how we do things, how we roll. So we are uh, at the point of Kitisa where Moshe is on Har Sinai. Moshe is on Mount Sinai, hanging out with God, having a little talk about stuff that needs to happen forever, like Shabbat. Um, and the people have been told, right, that they're going to receive Torah, because remember, they didn't want to hear it. They didn't want to hear Revelation. They couldn't handle it. So they tell, they tell Moshe, you go deal with getting Torah for us. We can't handle this. So Moshe goes up on the mountain, so they're waiting for him to come back. And that is the moment we pick up at 32.1. Bayar ha'am kiboshesh Moshe l'redet minahar. So the people saw that Moshe um, was delayed in coming down from the mountain. Vayikahel ha'am al-aharon. And so the people congregated Al, in this case, it literally means on, but in this case, al means against, right? It's not a good congregating. Um, they are not congregating on behalf of Aaron. They're not congregating because of Aaron. They are congregating against Aaron. And they said to him, kum, get up. Aselanu Elohim, make us Elohim that will go before us because this Literally, Zeh, this Moses, that guy who took us, who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we don't know Mehayalo, what, what's with him. Literally, we don't know Ma, we don't know what is with him. And so Aaron said to them, take off your gold at the gold jewelry that is in the ears of your wives and your sons and your daughters and bring it to me. And so all of the people did so. They took off the gold rings that were in their ears and they brought it to Aharon. And he takes it from their hands and he then forms it into a mold and makes into it a molten egel, an egel masecha. This means something probably of wood that is then covered in right melted, very thin gold plating. And they exclaimed. So the people exclaim, Yisrael. This is your Elohim, Yisrael, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And when Aaron saw this, he built, when he saw the people responding like that, he brings an altar before it and Aaron announces tomorrow Chag Ladonai is a Chag, is a festival to yud So early the next day, the people offered up burnt offerings, brought sacrifices of well-being. They sat down to eat and drink and then rose. Litzachek. How is it translated Litzachek here? To dance. What is Litzachek? Literally. Mm-hmm. See? What? What's the word Litzachek? To, to laugh? Oh, to play. The word is to play, but in David's accurate translation of play to frolic. This is how, right? It was understood that, uh, that Rebecca was not the sister of Yaakov because they are caught tzacheking on the roof. So this is dancing leads to frolic. This is this is frolicking, right? This is okay. So this is not dancing, right? Okay. So um, 
or and if so, it's a certain kind of yeah. <laughs> um, and so Yudhe Vafe spoke to Moshe. So now we we flip from the people back up to the top of Harsinai. God says to Moshe, hurry down, red, right? Lech, red, go, go down. Um, for your people, and here we're going to get the phrase yet again, that you brought up from the land of Egypt, they have, they have acted basely. Um, they're stepping so now they're Mo- now they're Moses's people, not God. Now they're Moses's people. God says, your people, that you brought up from the land of Egypt, they are messing up. Get down there. They have been quick to turn aside from the way that I enjoined upon them. They've made themselves a molten calf and bowed low to it and sacrificed to it, saying, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And God further says to Moshe, I see that this is Am Kshe'oref. This is a stiff-necked people. Now, the atta with an ayin, now, Leave me alone that I might let my nostrils flare against them, that I may destroy them. And I will make from you a great nation, a great people. In, in all fairness to the stiff-necked people, it, I didn't ever realize it was Aaron who suggested. Oh, yeah, that's where we're going. We're, we're, we're totes going there. Um, yeah. yeah. We're, we're almost done. All right. Let's get through this and then we're almost done and, we're, and we'll chat. By Achal Moshe et Pnei Yudhe Moshe implored Yudhe Vafe saying, don't let your nostrils flare against this people who you delivered for the fourth time, the phrase that you brought up from the land of Egypt. So we've had four different usages of bringing up from the land of Egypt. God said, your people who you brought up from the land of Egypt, Moshe says, don't let your anger blaze forth against your people who you took up out of the land of Egypt. Let not the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that God delivered them to kill them off in the mountains and annihilate them from the face of the earth. Turn from your blazing anger and renounce the plan to punish your people. Remember your servants, Abraham, Yitzchak, and Israel, how you swore to them by your own self and said to them, I will make your offspring as numerous as the stars of heaven, and I will give to your offspring this whole land of which I spoke to possess forever. And Yudhe renounced the punishment planned for God's people. So God was, in a sense, comforted by Moshe's ardent argument on behalf of the people. Thereupon Moses turned and went down from the mountain bearing the two tablets of the pact, tablets inscribed on both their surfaces. They were inscribed on the one side and on the other. The tablets were God's work and the writing was God's writing incised upon the tablets. When Joshua heard the sound of the people in its boisterousness, he said to Moses, um, the, the, the voice of war is in the camp. But Moshe answers, Mm-mm. it is not the sound of triumph or, nor the sound of defeat, meaning it's not that they are victorious in war or that they've lost a battle. That's not the noise that you're hearing. It is the sound of song that I hear. As soon as Moses came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, he became enraged. And he hurled the tablets from his hands and shattered them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it. He ground it into powder and strewed it upon water and so made the Israelites drink it. Moshe said to Aaron, Lisa, what did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, let my Lord not be enraged. There's a lot of language of flaring of the nostrils here, right? Let not my master's nostrils flare, right? It's a euphemism for being angry, but there's a lot of it here. Everybody's mad. Everybody's mad. Let not my Lord be enraged. Do you know that this people is bent on Ra, is bent on evil? You know them. These They didn't come down with yesterday's rain. You know these people. You don't have to lead them towards it. They said to me, 
It's here's his defense. They said to me, make us a God to lead us for that fellow Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt. Fifth time. We do not know what has happened to him. So I said to them, whoever has gold, take it off. They gave it to me. I hurled it into the fire and oh. <laughs> how can this happen? Magic, magic. It just Moses popped out. Were, it just huh? popped out. It just popped out. <laughs> Moses saw that the people were out of control since Aaron had let them get out of control so that they were a menace to any who might oppose them, meaning they were dangerous. Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, whoever is for Yudhei come here. And all the men of Levi rallied to him. And he said, thus says Yudhei the God of Israel, each of you put your sword on thigh, go back and forth from gate to gate throughout the camp and slay sibling, neighbor, and kin. The men of Levi did as Moses had bidden, and 3,000 of the people fell that day. And Moshe said, dedicate yourselves to Yudhei this day, for each of you has been against blood relations that God may bestow a blessing upon you. The next day, Moses said to the people, you've been guilty of a great sin, yet I will now go up to Yudhei Perhaps, perhaps, maybe I may win forgiveness for your sin. Moshe went back to Yudhei and said, Alas, this people is guilty of a great sin in making themselves a god of gold. Now, if you will forgive their sin, great. But if not, erase me from the record you have written. Yudhei said to Moses, Only one who has sinned against me will I erase from my record, meaning you have not. So I'm not going to give you, you know, I'm not going to kill you. Moshe says, if you kill them, kill me. And God says, I can't kill you. You haven't done anything. Go now. Lead the people where I tell you. See, my messenger will go before you. When I make an accounting, I will bring them to account for their sins. I'm not going to kill them now, but they are going to have consequences. Then Yudhei sent a plague upon the people for what they did with the calf that Aaron made. All right, we're going to stop here because that's a lot. All right. So a lot of us have read this story a lot. A lot of us have read the story many, 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 many times. And we've had, we've talked about different aspects of the story. Always, you know, there's some interesting aspect that hopefully we haven't thought a lot about before. For Lisa, she just realized, whoa, Aaron facilitated this. So the dude who's supposed to be high, going to be high priest facilitated the people having some kind of, you know, Mark, Mark Fish, if he were here, would say fetish. Right to focus on because the fetish Moshe is gone. Right, so we talked about that one year and about what it meant for them to right transfer from Moshe to the calf. Um, all right, so so we've got we've got Aharon whose defense is I was essentially trying to stall, so I had them take their gold. I was doing stuff with it, and this calf just emerged, right? Um, Moshe seems to understand in what he says, Moshe seems to understand that people are dangerous, right? That, that they are bent on Ra, right? That they are, that they are dangerous. Um, they are a mob. And so, um, and so par- possibly that's one of Aaron's defenses. The rabbis go to great lengths to deal with Aaron in this scenario. There is, Lots and lots and lots of Midrash and rabbinic commentary on why Aaron does this. Um, he's waiting for Moshe. He trusts Moshe's coming. And so he's stalling, right? It just all went faster than he anticipated. You know, whatever it is, like the, the rabbis go to great lengths to try to excuse Aaron and to make up reasons. He was in fear for his life. He really did think they would turn on him if he didn't do something. Um, notice. What is not happening, technically, what is not happening here is apostasy. That is not the sin. What's the proof that this is not apostasy? Well, the next day, Aaron said, let's worship Yudhei That day, Aaron says, tomorrow is hug to Yudhei This is not apostasy. They're not worshiping Isis. They're not worshiping Baal. They're not worshiping Horus. So why are God and Moshe so angry? 
Why are they so mad? The people are worshiping yud Hey vav Hey. But isn't that only after Moses came back? So did you? Meanwhile, down at the camp, Aaron is saying tomorrow with this calf is a festival to Yudhevavhe. But what he says today is I've made for you an Elohim for you to worship. So tomorrow is going to be a festival for the guy who we're supposed to be worshiping. But today I've made for you this image that you can. Okay, so possibly Elohim is not referring to God. It's referring to a God, and tomorrow will be a Chag to Yudhe And Melinda? Because, like, didn't God just give a really specific set of instructions about exactly how to worship and honor God? So here's a very interesting rabbinic defense of Moshe breaking the tablets. <clears throat> the people are doing all this before Moshe has brought down that very specific set of instructions. To, to your point, it's a good point. The rabbis take that point very seriously. And they say Moshe was was protecting the people from a death sentence. Because had Moshe brought them the tablets with very specific instructions about how to and how not to worship God, they would have been on the hook and they would have been on the hook for the calf and they would have been obliterated. God would have been completely within God's, I guess God's always within God's rights, but it would have been completely just and fair for God to wipe them out. So Moshe's actually acting legally to prevent them from being bound by the terms of the tablets by smashing them. Lisa? You know, more modern thing, how we could think of this is God really objecting to a physical manifestation of God as this golden calf of any physical manifestation. God is not a physically manifested being, even though he just said he's flaring his nostril. Well, that's a euphemism. It's like window shopping doesn't mean you're shopping for windows. Right. Right. Flaring the nostrils, right, is an anthropomorphism from way back, right? That So it's a euphemism for being angry. Um, it's It's actually the word for being angry. Um, so, so, so we've got that. So hang on. So wait, what did you just say? Okay. So what I love about what you just said, Lisa, is you're saying, so in a modern vein, we might interpret this to mean, forget modern. Already here, this story is all about you may not make a physical representation of yud hey vav hey. Now, to be fair to the people, they've not received that that ordinance that forbids that. They've not received that yet, right? So to be fair to them, and even to Aaron, the tablets have not come down saying, you shall make no graven image, okay? So they they haven't been told you can't yet for them to exactly breach it. Is it like good judgment on Aaron's part? Probably not. Hang on, we got a lot of hands. So Bert, and what do you want to say? Uh, I'm struck by the fact that just as with Abraham and Saddam, that Moses was arguing with God and got God to change his mind. Or her right. Mind. Right. That, that so, God is, is changeable. Right. Not. So, yes. Clearly in parts of Genesis and Exodus, God absolutely has emotions. God's mind can be changed. God can be influenced. 100%. That's how we know it's not P. That's how we know this is not a P text. Susan? So often you use the argument that there's no before and after or after and before in Torah. So maybe we're supposed to understand that there's no graven image to be developed, even though the, the Israelites haven't seen what's on the tablets. Say that again. So there's no earlier late in Torah. So what if they'd gotten the tablets and then made the calf? No. Um, the very frequently you raise the point that there's no before and after in Torah. Things very frequently I raise the point that the rabbis like to use that exegetical tool to get where they want to go. So tell me, where would you want to go? Well, then where are you going? I'm saying that the Israelites should have known that there was no that they shouldn't build a graven image. 
All right, next time we can have a longer conversation about Ein Mukdam Lomohar Batorah. That's not how it works, Susan. Okay. And, but, but I love the, I love the instinct to say, well, what if it's not linear? But it's not Ein Mukdam Lomohar Batorah, that exegetical principle. You'd have to say, well, if the tablets came down before the creation of the Egel, because there's no earlier late in Torah, then what? Right? You have to use that to prove a point you're going with, like Zorenberg quotes the tradition that actually this happened before the instructions for the Mishkan. Why? Why would you do that? Why would you say there's no early or late, so we're going to switch them? There has to be a point. There has to be a point you're making. So the rabbis do it to say that's why we need a Mishkan, because they obviously need gold and a bunch of stuff mm-hmm. when worshiping or else we're, they're going to get in trouble with another idol. So let's give them the Mishkan. You see what I'm saying? It, it it explains why we have a Mishkan with gold and crap when we don't. Why should we even need that? So you have to figure out exegetically where are you going with the point? There's no early or late in Torah. Otherwise, the shot says they haven't gotten the Lukot yet. They don't know they can't make a graven image. Yeah. All right. Jody. Um, I have a lot of forgiveness Um about the crowd, the Israelites, because they came out of Egypt. This is the only gods they know. So the parent was away, as many parents are. The kids have a party. We all know that. <laughs> Those Mine the- never did. <laughs> never. Okay. okay. Never. She went to parties where <laughs> maybe the That's parents smart. weren't home. So the parent figure is away. They don't know what to do. I mean, they build the God that they're used to. Okay. So I have a lot of forgiveness for them. Well, I, after that, I, I have a couple of points. Okay. David? Just clarify Joshua's role in all of this, because he's mentioned and then... Joshua's an errand boy. He's just like... He's just an errand boy. He's Moshe's assistant. He He inherits the mantle of authority... He, but he's his protege. So he's left and sort of waiting at the moment. He's, he's waiting, right. He's kind of in between. So he's, he's Moshe's mentee. I wonder if this is kind of a link between what you talked about before of the people needing some kind of a physical manifestation because that's what they're used to. And so this is kind of the, the next step before they're told no manifestations physically. Okay, well, no, that can't be because clearly God is really angry. So was Moshe. Yeah, but it, the tablets were cracked and destroyed. So they're saying, well, maybe we could do it this last little bit. Well, it seems Moshe and God are not okay with this calf. They are not saying it's okay now, but in the future, no. They are furious now. God and Moshe are furious. They are livid. And they're keeping score. So, okay, so... The, the most minor point is at the, which I didn't think of until we actually started with the text was there's not even a thought to say, Oh, maybe somebody should go try to track Joshua down and see what's going on. It's like he's missing what's going on. It's not like, well, should we check whether or not Moses hurt himself on the mountain or maybe he fell down or whatever. It's like no, nothing like that, but, but that's a minor point. Biggest, the bigger point was, because I was thinking about this yesterday, actually, is I'm surprised that God is surprised. Mm-hmm. I, I don't um, know that God is surprised, by the way. Be, because, I mean, he's clearly surprised. He's like, oh, look what I don't know doing. about surprised. Like, right. But the analogy that the analogy about this being surprised is, and this is out there, is this is like chat GPT. All of the stuff that we read about AI today is like we're upset because we can't figure out how AI is making its decisions. So this is like this, God is like this universal intelligence, universal consciousness. It's like, and we are the artificial intelligences, and we're off doing things, and he can't figure out why we're doing what we're doing, right? Mm -hmm. And that's why he gets upset. It's like we get mad at ChatGPT because it, it hallucinates an answer. Well, we were hallucinating a God. Okay, so why should he be upset? And the last point is, what justifies the killing of those three million, uh, three thousand people? Like, why not some other three thousand people? Why not all of them? What did these three thousand people do? Yeah, on that last point, I was curious. So Moses had the Levites go out and, and 
slaughter 3,000 people who were presumably not Levites. And then why did God then later visit a plague upon them? Like, was there anybody left? I mean, like, <laughs> okay, all good questions. Robert, you want to go and then I'll try to take some of these. And... Uh, this idea, it seems unacceptable to me that the people who are at the foot of the mountain where God is clearly present think it's okay to be mitzahaking. <laughs> Robert goes to a more fundamental point. God is present. They've been told to purify themselves. They've been told to get ready. They have this theophany on the top of the mountain. The mountain is supercharged. That's why they can't go check if Moshe's okay. They've been told you can't touch the mountain or you'll be put to death. And Robert says, so if they know God is there, why are they mitzahaking? Just saying. Right? Robin? Many years ago, when I started taking Torah study, you said, because the, because the people had been slaves for so long that they were not very smart. You used another word, but, and I always remembered that. I'm just saying, they don't get it. All right. So Robin and Jody both are like, look, these are, these are people who they're schleppers. They've been told what to do for generations. They don't, they have no idea. All they know is what's going on in Egypt that they've seen for 400 years. They have no idea. And so cut them a husk. They just, they're just not real bright. You know, they, they, they haven't developed that, you know, sense of responsibility for themselves yet. Okay. We're, we're, we're still schleppers. Huh? We're still schleppers. We're still schleppers, says Mehmet. Like, not, not untrue. The Torah was written 2,800 years ago, I think you mentioned. Who put it together? Was it a committee? Do we know? Oh, my God. We are so not going there today. We are not going there. We do not have time. All right. So that is a great class. Come more to Torah study. You'll hear it at some point. Um, okay. So it, it took a 1,000 years. That's the short answer. It was a 1,000 years of. Before 2,800. Yeah. A thousand year period from the time the earliest texts are put together until we have the canonization of the text. So it was a very long process. And a lot of people involved in that process and a lot of schools of thought and a lot of agendas, right? In which text made it and which text didn't. Okay. So, um, all right. So I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna answer a few of these things, speak to a few of these, and then I want to move on to, um, my source sheet. Um, which is not any of those things that we just talked about. <laughs> so, um, so the mountain probably supercharged. God is there. It's, there was lightning, smoke, blah, 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 blah. But remember, Moshe's up there a very long time. So Moshe's up there a long time. He delays in coming down. When did they start counting? The rabbis say they counted wrong. So they were 40 days and 40 nights. They started counting on the wrong day. So he was coming down the next day, but they got to 40 before he came down. So, right, I hate it when that happens. So, so they panic, right? And they, they don't know what's happened to him. All right. So to the point of it's a modern idea that we don't have physical representations, that is, that is not true. We moderns like to think so. Um, but Jude, Judaism roots itself in the Israelite tradition that says you may not make an image of Yudhei Here's here's the thing. All right. So why is God so mad? They don't know any better, says Robin and Jody. They're just a bunch of slaves. Here's why I think God is so mad, because God just delivered 10 plagues. This invisible force called God just delivered 10 plagues. God's prophet Moshe said, watch, see what Yehovah will do for you. Not a calf, not an elephant, not a Horus bird thing. This Yudhei Buffet for whom I speak. And then, as if that weren't enough, killing the firstborn of Egypt, that weren't enough. God parts the sea for them. They come through the sea. They, it, it, this force destroys Pharaoh's army before their very eyes. Then this force speaks to Moshe, says, tell the people to get ready. And then this force comes down on Sinai with smoke and and all the things you'd imagine, fireworks and all the stuff going, right? And and they hear lightning. They hear lightning, right? All sense of what synesthesia, what's it called when synesthesia? Synesthesia. They have synesthesia at the mountain. 
what more (laughs) does this power need to do for them to have them trust that it's got their back? That's why I think God, and it's not surprised, God, you ask me, God is angry because God is hurt. And after all I've done for you, I showed up for you. Look at what I've done for you. And you need me to be made manifest in the way you want, not the way that's actually efficacious that got you out of slavery. That's not good enough for you. You want me to show up the way you want me to look in this tiny thing full of itself. What is the Mishkan? What's at the center of the Holy of Holies? What is the holiest place in the Mishkan? Wood. Wood that makes a delineation around what? Around empty space. That is lined with gold on the inside and on the outside. That is what is supposed to represent my presence among you. It's an empty space. And what goes in that empty space? Torah. Teachings about how you're supposed to live with each other. That's what is supposed to represent my presence among you. Not a cow full of itself because you saw that in Egypt. Or at Nordstrom's. <laughs> you, you, right? So God, for me, I really think this is not a surprised God. This is not a vengeful God. That's how the Christians like to portray it when they want the New Testament to be about a yummier, friendlier God than ours. This is a God, I believe, in deep relationship and has been really hurt. So Moshe takes the contract and Moshe rips up the contract because that's what the people have done. They've abrogated the agreement already. George? It seems to be a split because the Levites were then instructed by someone to kill 3,000. They weren't instructed to kill 3,000. Let's be clear. We're not exactly sure. It seems Moshe says all for Yudhei Vavhei over here. And whoever's still busy litzacheking is slaughtered. Yeah. So it's about who, right? Who's participating in acts that have not been sanctioned? They are bringing sacrifices that have not been sanctioned. We know what happens when that happens, right? Weren't there six hundred thousand people there supposedly? Yes. Well, then three thousand is a very, very small portion of six. There you go. Is that your will? Is that? All right, like nine eleven. All right, I want to. Well, presumably, presumably, these are not three thousand innocent people killed. These are three thousand instigators who are killed. Doesn't really say that. It doesn't really say that because it shouldn't really have to. He's not just going to murder eight year olds randomly. I mean, that that does not give you the trust of the people, right? It's it's. Who's responsible? Who's engaged in the worst egregious, right, stuff? The ones up there, you know, with nothing on, mitzacheking. All right. Let's, so I want to talk a little bit about this breaking of the tablets, right? So God makes these tablets with God's own writing. It's written on both sides. So we, we picture that as there's two tablets and on this side, and on this side, that right, there's columns of writing. That is funny, not how the rabbis read it. The rabbis read it, it's a miracle. God carves the letters into the tablet so that it's carved on both sides. It goes all the way through. But miraculously, no matter which way you turn them, it reads correctly. It's written on both Sides, not both sides. Yeah, I'm not like that. That means both sides, right? That is how we tend to pictorialize it. Well, that is, that's, that doesn't have to be the way you picture it. We're just so used to it that we see the proof in the text, but that's not where the rabbis go. The rabbis go, uh, uh-uh, these are miraculous tablets. How dare Moshe break this thing? This is, this is a, This is God's gift 
to the people. How dare Moshe break them? That is an incredible act of chutzpah. We had a whole shiur. Listen, it's on one of the podcasts. Bert will tell you which one. Um, when we did Kitisa, we did a whole shiur on Yeshukoach Sheshibarta. All of the Midrashim, or many of the Midrashim that come to say that Moshe did a great thing. He spared the people from being on the hook, right? All these things. And that God in, in the Midrash says to Moshe, Yeshukoach Sheshibarta, Yeshukoach, that you broke the tablets. That was the right move. And that's why God gives us, has Moshe bring up a second set to be inscribed. Okay, we're not going to go there. I want to go somewhere else because I found this really lovely commentary. So here's our text, right, that we're dealing with. We're dealing with uh, 3219. As soon as Moshe came near the camp, I said, why is this not side by side? Like I want it to be so that people can see the Hebrew. Okay, there we go. Okay, so... Um, as soon as Moshe came near the camp, saw the calf and the dancing, he became enraged. And he hurled the tablets from his hands and shattered them at the foot of the mountain. What does Rashbam say? And this is all based on uh, a teaching by Rabbas Sarah Hurwitz at Yeshivat Maharat. And I'd never heard this teaching. So I, this is, I love when a new thing is opened up from a text that I already love. When Moshe saw the golden calf, he became physically too weak to continue to carry the weight of the tablets. And he threw them as far as possible away from himself so that they wouldn't drop on his feet. This is the way all people who throw away a burden they carry and which has become too heavy for them do. How do they do this? This is the way Pirkei Jarabi Eliezer explains this verse meaning he threw it so it wouldn't fall on his feet. This is also the obvious plain meaning of the verse. Like, this is the obvious meaning of the verse. <laughs> That's chutzpah right there. Okay, right? Pshuto. Pshuto. Pshita in uh, Aramaic is uh, duh. Pshita. Duh. It's simple, right? So it's also, it's like, this is simple. Anyone understands this. All right. So you're reading something into this and then saying, well, duh. Right. OK, so he 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 has an actual physical reaction to the cab and the mitzacheking and all that's going on and the implications. And it all like slams into him at once. The tablets are now literally too heavy and he can't carry them. So he could just let his arms down. But if he does that. They're going to fall on his feet. I don't know about y'all, but have you ever felt something slipping out of your grasp? And like our reaction, and it happens to me a lot, when you're about to drop something, the reaction is to get your feet out of the way. So that's one reaction. Get your feet out of the way or it's going to fall on you and that's going to hurt really, really badly. But another reaction might be for some people, clearly for me, just jumping my feet out of the way. But for some people, he's suggesting when you're about to lose something, you toss it away from you. So it doesn't fall on your feet. Okay. So let's look at Chizkuni. One of these is 10th century. One is 12th. So uh, I gave you Rashbam who comes first. Chizkuni in the 1200 says, What does it mean? He hurled them from his hands. Moshe's physical strength left him when he saw with his own eyes the golden calf. God said, get down there. When Moshe actually sees What's happening, right? His physical strength left him. So he, he becomes faint, right? He, all of his strength leaves him and he was no longer able to hold on to the tablets and threw them a short distance from where he stood just far enough so they would not hurt his feet by falling on them. Okay. So this seems to be a pretty common Understanding. Yes. It means he really wasn't that angry. He was just beautiful, George. So in this instance, it's not so much that he's angry, it's that he's he's so taken aback by what's happening that he's he's horrified to the point where all of his strength leaves him. Sounds like he had a panic attack. He had a panic attack and cannot hold on to the tablets, so he's just trying to get them away from falling on his feet. And he's not a young guy, to Richard's point. He's 80. So Malbim, 
What does the Malbim say? The Malbim says, as he approached camp, Moshe initially thought they only made the calf as a substitute for him because he failed to return when expected. And he was certain they would repent the moment they saw him. That is why he did not break the tablets immediately. But then when they continued their revelry, despite his arrival, he realized that their intention was to rebel against God. So the shock, according to Malbim, wasn't the calf. Because he realized they made the calf because he was missing. The calf wasn't God. The calf was Moshe who brought them out of Egypt, a stand-in for Moshe. And we've had this conversation, right? There were years where that was our conversation. Is the calf about Moshe or is the calf about God? Malbim argues Moshe thought the calf was about Moshe. So the minute he showed up, they should have said, Oh, we don't need this thing anymore. Because look, there's Moshe, Asher Ha'elinu, who brought us up from the land of Egypt. But they didn't. So when they didn't stop because he showed up, that's the moment Moshe knew it was actually a stand-in for God. And that made him, right, faint um, and and whatever else he became. All right, so here's here's the teaching by Rabbi Sarah Hurwitz that I'm bringing you. Here, my friends, is, I think, the simple point of this dramatic scene. Rashbam understood that if Moshe injured his legs, he would not be able to get up and climb the mountain again. If he hadn't known when to let go, if he had not preserved his physical and emotional well-being, even in front of all the eyes of the people of Israel, he would not have found the resilience to get up and try again. This act of shattering the tablets is what made Moshe the greatest leader of all times. This formula for Moshe was knowing when to grasp tightly and hold on to something precious and wonderful with two hands. Because our Torah verse said he took the tablets in his hands. He grasped them. He held on tightly to them. To have the energy and strength, wisdom and fortitude to carry something as precious as the tablets, or let's read teaching, right? To have the strength to carry something as precious as true teaching. And at the same time, knowing and understanding the consequences of holding on when that burden becomes too heavy. And he sent them forth from his hand. That the genius she's arguing of Moshe's leadership is that he knew when to hold on and he knew when to let go. She says, as the Da'at Zikanim, uh, this is a commentary on Deuteronomy, explains, this is what Ecclesiastes had in mind when, and this is, uh, we know this very well, uh, this verse, there is a time for throwing stones and a time for gathering stones. This, she's saying, is what was the wisdom of Ecclesiastes in saying that. There's a time to throw stones and a time to gather stones, right? That that this is what is meant. And this commentary, the Dodd-Zakanim, argues that. That this is what Moshe knew. Moshe knew there was a time to gather stones, to hold on to the Luchot, and there was a time to let go of them. We'll come back to my questions. And she gets, she, she brings this commentary from the whole, she uses it as an example, the whole issue with Simone Biles pulling out of the Olympics. So she's, cause then people wanted to say that's selfish. America's going to lose. You can't do that. Like you're thinking not of, of the team, but of yourself. And so, um, Rabah Hurwitz argues Simone Biles decision was not selfish. Selfless or selfish. Rather, she recognized and preserved herself so that she would not disappear. I've seen people comparing Biles to Carrie Strug, who during the 1996 Olympics in Atlanta famously broke her ankle on the vault. She performed her second vault injured, stuck the landing, and helped Team USA clinch a team gold medal in women's gymnastics. Both are seen as heroes. However, Strug never competed again. Or more likely, the pressure of her coaches and all of our expectations of her prioritized the gold medal over her health. 
Simone had the courage before all of our eyes as the world watched to prioritize her health over a gold medal. And as I think about Stroke and Biles, I wonder about the choice I made back when I was a kid. She, that's a whole thing she started this whole thing with. Perhaps the shattered tablets, explains Rashi, were preserved, kept and carried in the second wooden ark as Moshe and the children of Israel journeyed through the desert as a reminder of this lesson. That brokenness does not need to be equated with weakness. Mm-hmm. Knowing our limits, knowing when to let go, and not allow something to shatter can actually make us stronger. In throwing the tablets away from his feet, Moshe had the resilience to pick himself up again and climb the mountain for another chance to receive the second set of Ten Commandments, the ones which would ultimately carry the Israelites through their journey through the desert towards their final destination. May we all have the courage, despite all eyes on us, to know when and what to hold on to, and then to also know when and what to let go. Isn't that about the greatest lesson? It's it's a beautiful, beautiful teaching from this Orthodox uh, woman scholar. Um, And then then once I started going down that rabbit hole. um, What's the difference between a Rosh bomb and a Ram bomb? Can you mind that? It's Roche Tebot. It's an abbreviation for their names. Okay. Rambam is Rabbi Maimon Ben right. whatever. So Ram, so it's it's the first letter of of their name, and that becomes an acronym. Mm-hmm. Kenny Rogers must know when to hold. them. Know when to fold them. Know when to walk away, and know when to run. <laughs> right. Know when to run. Rabbi Tom Weiner writes. So in the fear and need of something to hold on to they forced Aaron to make them a God, right? Again, this, so we've got Moshe knowing when to hold on and knowing when to let go. On the other side, there's the people, right? That need something to hold on to. And in that, they forced Aaron to make them a God, actually a physical representation of the God of Israel, the biggest of all no-nos. This was one of the great traumas of our early history. From our perspective, it may seem as if the people newly freed, about to get the Torah, should have been rejoicing, elated, optimistic. Yet it was a time of fear, panic, transition from a life that was painful but familiar to a life that would be, well, they didn't know what it would be. But they couldn't let go. Inside the Ark of the Covenant were the two new tablets of the Ten Commandments alongside the broken pieces of the first tablets. But why? Why literally enshrine those damaged, these damaged memories? Is that even healthy? Isn't it best to let go of the past? Not to dwell on the pains and the mistakes, to live in the present, to live for the future. Yet for some reason, our people chose not to let go or forget them, but to A, carry the broken and shattered tablets of their most painful moment, and B, alongside the whole and complete tablets of their most glorious encounter with God, meaning the encounter in which they were forgiven and taken back into intimate relationship. In his novel, A Farewell to Arms, Ernest Hemingway wrote that oft-quoted phrase, the world breaks everyone, and afterwards, many are strong in the broken places. Strong in the broken places. Does it really work that way? Do we really get strong in the broken places, physically, spiritually, emotionally? The physical part was the easiest for me to look into. I called my doctor and I asked, is it true that when we break a bone and it heals that it's stronger than it was before, which I've also heard a lot, right? You know, the bone is stronger where it breaks. He did what good doctors do. He called an orthopedist (laughs) who said it depends on how you treat it at first. You have to be very gentle with it. If you ignore it, you don't take care of it, you don't watch your diet, you avoid the physical therapist, then it certainly won't be stronger than before. But if you take good care of it, gently at first, follow through with all of your therapy and work it hard to get it strong again, then yes, it could well be stronger than it was before. The more you use it, the stronger it gets. Eckhart Tolle, that great spiritual Teacher, sometimes letting things go is an act of far greater power than defending or hanging on. So, the, love that. Mike, yeah. the, the applause. Love that. I'll take it. So, 
so much there for me this time about focusing on when does Moshe hold on and when does Moshe let go? That Moshe seems to know when it's really important to hang on and when it's really important to not only let go, but let go in such a way that he preserves his ability to get up and do it again, right? And this idea that Simone Biles could have pushed through, but would that be the right set of priorities, right? What if she did push through and she won the gold medal for Team America but never competed again? Is Do we have a right to ask that, right? Is that the right set of priorities, And often I feel like we don't get it. Our priorities are so screwed up that people, when you ask them, how are you? Oh, my God, I'm so busy. Oh, my God. Like, I'm so exhausted. I am so tired. As if that's a good thing that that you are. That means you're living rightly as an American who is super productive right? And super on top of stuff and super engaged with stuff to the point of exhaustion. And we reward that, don't we? Right? We reward, oh my gosh, wow, that sounds like so much. Good for you. Make sure you take care of yourself. Do we mean it? Do we mean make sure you take care of yourself? You're not doing it. No, we don't. We say it, but we don't mean it because we keep praising people who make more money, who work 80 hours a week. Like, who, right? And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with hard work. That's not what I mean. I think what this uh, Rabbi Horowitz is bringing forward is we so often feel like we, so we're supposed to be able to carry everything. And if we can't or don't, it's a sign of weakness. And what she's suggesting is if we get our priorities right, we can be like Moshe, the greatest leader of all time, who knew when to throw those ta- throw those tablets, A, but B, throw them in such a way that they didn't just fall and injure him so that then he couldn't actually lead. And that the people, their big sin, their big screw-up came from not being able to let go. That they they were so desperate for something to hold on to that was familiar to them that that's how they got in super big trouble, which is, I think, the point, one of the major points of this whole favorite scene of mine, which is, do not ask me to show up in your life the way you think it's supposed to look. That's idolatry. That's not faith. That's not religion. That is idolatry. I'm always there for you. Always. It is not going to look like you want it to. A lot of the time. That's faith. That's real religion. That's real spirituality. I trust I can access goodness, holiness, justice, equity, mercy, patience, transformation. I I have access to that no matter what is showing up in my life. That's the work, is to not ask the universe to bring that stuff to us on a golden platter. It doesn't work that way. That's idolatry. And we don't get to luxuriate in idolatry. In this is how I want it. This is what's familiar to me. This is what makes me happy. This is what makes me comfortable. This is what makes me trust there is something bigger than me. Is it? It brings me everything I put on my top ten list. It just—that's idolatry, and we are forbidden to ask the divine to show up in our lives the way we want to paint it. And I think that's a teaching we need over and over and over and over and over again. And uh, you know, my questions, you know, that that lingered when I, you know, put all this down because I had to make a sheet so I could bring it to y'all. When do we hold on when we should let go? How much of us are schlepping Samsonite size, super size Samsonite luggage behind us? That it would be so much easier to make our way in this world if we just, right, let it go. We don't have to schlep a bunch of stuff with us just because it's all just just because we've always dragged it behind us. 
So when do we hold on? Because we're just too afraid to let go. And, and nobody says we can't be afraid, by the way. Nobody says we're not allowed to be afraid. But the answer is not, right, holding on so then we're crippled and we can't make it up the hill a second time. Especially with fears and grudges. Fears and grudges. Um, can we understand letting go of even some good stuff as necessary for our growth, right? Like Moshe flings the tablets. That was good stuff. That's teaching that's supposed to be with us today. But in that moment, he... The thing he needed to do, if we read this commentary this way, the thing he needed to do was to get rid of it for now, to let go for now. Are there things we hang on to that we that don't serve us anymore that are even good things? I don't know. And once we rid ourselves of the stuff impeding our growth, are we ready to do the work of getting up and climbing the mountain again? Right? We're tired. Are you kidding? Again? And again with these people? Really? Really? Well, the answer is yes. <laughs> right? So take a rest. Let Joshua bring you something to eat. Hydrate. Take a nap. And then, yes, you have to do it again. And again. And again. And again. And again. After enlightenment, the dishes. Yes. you have to, Like, I got, I'm not kidding. The last few days I've gotten up and I'm like, oh, my God, again with the dog. Like, what did you think changed from last Thursday with the one I rescued Chihuahua? Well, well, of course it's again today with the dog, right? But there's days where it's like, oh, really? Again? I took you out yesterday. <laughs> right, right? Like, um, yeah. Um, who do we trust to tell us it's time to throw something out? It's time to let go. Give it up. What will it take for us to be able to trust them and toss what is familiar and comforting, even if it's too heavy? And no longer serves. What if we risk in not letting go? What do we risk in not letting go of what we think defines us? That's a question. So you pointed out that if, if we try to, uh, conceptualize God in a particular way, uh, that, that risks falling over into idolatry. But isn't any attempt to conceptualize God sort of on the knife's edge of whether it's physical or not physical? Rambam data. In, in, in other words, if, if we, if we say like God is the, God is like the, the source of the feelings within us that like make us recognize good and things like that, right? So we see, you know, in, in a world where there's lots of bad stuff going on, we see something good and we say to ourselves, A, this kind of like affirms my faith in humanity, that humans are capable of this. But that often also says, and that in turn justifies my faith in a something that that concept you conceptualize as being the source of that. So, sure. so, so, said. so for people, some people like Rambam say, you can't say anything of God because we can't possibly conceive in any way of God. And it's blasphemous mm-hmm. to say God is the source of the good that happened. Mm-hmm. That's blasphemy that for Rambam, for Maimonides, he's a Neoplatonist. And so it's like God is perfection. Mm-hmm. And so all you can say about God is what God is not. That's all you can say about God is negative language. God is not the source of evil, God is, or, or what, whatever. Like, so, so for Rambam, he's for sure. But other folks don't want to do that. They want to, um, they want to use, like Schulweiss, they want to use positing that which is good and holy and amazing and life-giving. All of that is what they call God. They're not saying it defines God. They're saying that is God at work That's in in the world, right? So it's, it's um, predicate theology. Everything you predicate about what is good, that is godly. Um, then there are those of us who don't have a supernatural understanding of a being at all. And so I don't, I don't, I have less of a danger, right? Because I don't conceptualize God as a the cause of, mm-hmm. right? The being who causes anything. So if I don't have a supernatural God that intervenes, then what we do as human beings is about us, but I do believe there are 
capacities built into the universe that we can access. And I call that godliness, holiness. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.